Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. This season, we're discussing how the Bible speaks to Asian American biblical scholars and how the church shapes and informs their scholarship. I'm Jeanette Oak, your host. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Centering Season 8 of the Asian American Podcast. My name is Jeanette Oak, and I am so honored to be your host this season. And our theme is Asian American Biblical Scholarship for the Church. Centering really focuses on what it means to be an Asian American Christian. And as a biblical scholar myself, I wanted to talk to biblical scholars across the United States to discuss for them what does it mean to do what they do in service of the church as an Asian American. Our guest today is Dr. Roger Nam. He is professor of Hebrew Bible at Emory University's Candler School of Theology. And before joining Candler's faculty, he was actually Dean and Professor of Biblical Studies at Portland Seminary, which is in Oregon, George Fox University. And before becoming a biblical scholar, Roger was a financial analyst in the Silicon Valley. And he also served as a youth pastor in Seoul, South Korea. So that's right, Roger has had not one, but three careers if you're counting. Uh, Roger's current research interests focus on the book of Ezra Nehemiah and economies of ancient Near East. Uh, in other words, he likes to engage in studies of economics and wealth and poverty in the biblical world. He explores how that relates to diaspora, migration, and forced displacement in the context of biblical texts, but also in our context today. So welcome to Centering Roger. You waited till season eight to start the Bible? That's... That's mind-blowing for my childhood Sunday school teacher. <laughs> you know, they just are waiting for the right host. What can I say? Yeah, I know. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. Season eight was the best season of Seinfeld. This is, this is perfect. Well, this is going to be the best season, right? And you're going to help launch Absolutely. that. <laughs> but Roger, I'm so thrilled to have you as a guest. You're someone to me who both is very active in service of the guild, but also in service of the church. And also you've really served your institutions and continue to do so in, 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 um, so many ways. And so there's a lot we can talk about and unpack today, but I want to first get, just delve into what it is you're up to lately. What fun or what interesting things have you been up to related to your biblical scholarship? Well, it's great to be here and it's great to talk to you. We have many years together in terms of being colleagues and friends. And I even remember preaching at your church before. Yes. And, and so it's uh, really great to have these conversations. So I signed a contract to write a commentary on Ezra Nehemiah, it's with Old Testament Library with Westminster John Knox. And it was a six-year contract, and I signed it five years ago. So <laughs> right now, I am furiously going through secondary, like working on Ezra Nehemiah and trying to think about kind of the totality of the book and kind of its overall broad arching themes now that I've gone through most of the text. So that's taken up a lot of my time these days. Is the art of writing a commentary, is it fun? Fun. Uh, is it well, arduous? So Fuller actually has tradition of one of the most prolific commentary writers in Old Testament in yes. Leslie Allen. And I remember talking to him about it once a long time ago when I was a student, and he, he just loved it because he loved getting into biblical books. I will say I don't share the same degree of enthusiasm. Uh, I was asked this in the past. I think part of it, I enjoy a lot of the work with the text getting to know these things that you wouldn't know if you're just to write a book or a monograph or something like that. But I will say also in biblical studies, there's a lot of 
articles and books and a lot of interpretations and it's kind of overwhelming and so I'm actually now that I'm closing in on the end of this I'm, I'm looking forward to my next project yeah there's a lot you have to synthesize and bring together there are a lot of bad interpretations and there are a lot of um there are a lot of uh, different even ways of doing knowledge and producing mm. interpretation that I think it's kind of a little overwhelming. I think most commentary writers, as I'm getting to understand, they really enjoy working with the biblical text the most. And the next part is a little bit more onerous because you do need to cover the literature. You need, you need to cover some of the general trends and, and thoughts and movements in biblical scholarship. And so that, that can be a little burdensome. So speaking of Ezra Nehemiah, is there like a passage or a text that's been difficult to uh, interpret or to comment on or something that you find really intriguing that you've been excited about engaging lately? Yeah, yeah. So in terms of difficult, one of the things that comes to mind is, I mean, one of the most theologically problematic is the issue of the mixed marriages. And so this yeah. appears in Ezra 9 and 10. It appears also in, in Nehemiah. We don't know if they're the same incident, but basically they are complaining and crying out because uh, they have taken wives from foreigners. And so the solution of that is to banish the foreign women and their children. And so in the context of being a Christian who reads the Bible as a center of authority, as something that is um, supposed to have some guidance in light to our lives, to read about what's socially a very brutal reaction is, is pretty difficult to deal with. And so, yeah, it's loaded with problems, but that's the first one that comes to mind both historically and in my current reading of, of the text. We got to hang out back in Princeton Seminary for the Angle Institute of Preaching, where you right. were one of the plenary speakers talking about how to preach Ezra Nehemiah. And actually, I think Ezra Nehemiah is a text that is it fair to say not often preached because of difficult passages that you have just pointed to? Not often is an understatement. Like it so is not preached. It's not at all. preached. So I I write for working preachers sometimes, and uh, they recently said, "Hey, we have another. You know, could you do another set of commentary writings?" Said, sure, I can do that. I'm working on Ezra Nehemiah. Why don't you give me the lectionary items on Ezra Nehemiah? There was one passage. So in a three-year lectionary cycle, one Sunday gets Nehemiah eight which is a fabulous passage, but that is the only lone place. Mm -hmm. And so I, I remember for this, I had to write on the book of Daniel, which I know nothing about, but you know, I, I came <laughs> up with something, I'm sure. <laughs> it's part of what we do. It's part of what we do. Right. So would you say like for people who are daunted by the idea of preaching and teaching from Ezra Nehemiah, what is one like thing that could help them overcome that overwhelm? Because so it is think... such a hard text. Yeah, it, it's a it's a complex text. It's a hard text. We don't know much about it if you grew up in the church because people preach from the Gospels and Paul mm -hmm. and some of the stories. And most of the stories we know from childhood. So it kind of weans out a lot of the violence and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so we really aren't familiar with the Old Testament mm -hmm. in ways that probably should. And so I think one thing to look away is, you know, you take any homiletics class, there's attention to the audience. So think about the audience and go to the very opening prologue of Ezra. What happens? King Cyrus is king, and he lets all the people go back to Jerusalem. It says in, where is this actually? Ezra 1.3, any of those among you who are of his people, may their God be with them. 
are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem in Judah. So going all the way from Persia, migrating up to Jerusalem. So essentially, all of Ezra and Nehemiah is fronted by this prologue of people in migration over mm. multiple generations. So for pastors that are dealing with trying to be more culturally sensitive to congregations that are more ethnically diverse, this is your chance. You have a mm. book that begins with a migration. So all the literature, all the theology that comes within, it's all in the context of a migration. And of course, as you and I both know, as children of immigrants, when you migrate, it is totalizing. It impacts everything. It impacts, it's not some simple punctiliar motion of going to the new country. Right. It lasts for generations and generations. And so I would say as a encouragement to preachers, if you are struggling to become more uh, racially inclusive to kind of meet the needs of a more diverse congregation, then think about Ezra Nehemiah because it's fronted with this migration movement. That is really helpful. And then as they enter into the text, they can engage these other issues. And there's a lot of relevance to today's political climate as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So Ezra Nehemiah is uh, obsessed with identity. Like, what does it mean to be a God-worshipping Judean? What does it mean in terms of, you know, they make a big reference to, to written Torah as part of that. They're building a temple. You cannot misinterpret this. You cannot make this the soundbite for this podcast, but they build a wall. <laughs> and there's something very <laughs> theologically significant mm -hmm. about the wall. Yes. And uh, But you have to understand in context what that is. It's um, the mechanisms of building, how much energy it takes, the narrative of who's involved in the building. What is the function of the wall? during its time, the insider-outsider mentality, which I think is part of what's going on, but really dangerous to naturally hermeneutically import this to modern times without thinking about its context. Well, that's all the more reason you got to finish this commentary and get it out there. We need well, this commentary. Yeah, um, I, yes, <laughs> I'm working on it, but, you know, commentaries, if I ever write another one, I want to make it a little bit less technical. Like I, a friend of mine just wrote one on Genesis, and he said he did not consult secondary literature. He did not do a lot of research. He just read it and gave his thoughts. Like, you know what? Maybe I'll do that in my 60s or something like that. But I'm definitely taking a little break from commentary writing. I'm not going to pull off a Leslie Allen in my life. Right. Well, you're pulling off a Roger Nam, and you got a lot going on there. <laughs> well, I was very kind of you. I, I was thinking about that recent uh, video that Emery put out of you talking about... Right. What was that called, Roger? I forgot. It's something like, it was so it's the about diaspora and yeah. Yeah. How to, you're talking about questions of identity, understanding the past, how we can develop greater empathy for each other today. And right. I just want to shout, put a shout out for that. If you guys want to watch that, it's a Vimeo video for Emery's two, 2036 campaign, but it's right. really good. I feel like it's, it gives you a snippet of what you're trying to do or a unique angle in which perspective you're trying to offer. Uh, in your scholarship and your work. Right, right. So that one was, so my direction for that, it was to present an idea broadly. So this isn't for pastors. This isn't for even Christians. Mm -hmm. This was actually Emory 2036 is part of this huge fundraising campaign. And so they asked a few professors to give this like really polished seven minute talk on something related to research. But the instruction, it has to be very um, accessible. It has mm -hmm. to be jargon-free. And so it was actually kind of a nice opportunity to think about my scholarship and to try to convince that it was meaningful, not just for uh, my own personal benefit, not just for the creation of knowledge, but 
truly the betterment of the world connect scholarship to enhancing our lives. And so, yeah, so part of that was this idea for a book that I'm, you know, I'm contracted for, which will start after June of 2023. But I'm basically looking about how diasporic lives are so vastly different. You cannot have mm -hmm. a single migration experience. And in fact, even individually, our migration experience are so different for different points of our life in childhood, when we're adults, when we become parents is a, is a huge event for some of us that become parents in terms of our identity and migration. So kind of my main point was that migration experiences are diverse and variegated, and they cannot be straightjacked into one singular experience. And they're dynamic, and they change over time, and, and that's okay. And, and part of you know, and if I to put this in Christian language, if you really are called to be your brother's and sister's keeper, I think there's a burden that we can understand these different experiences. And I think through understanding these experiences, we have the capacity to develop greater empathy for those mm -hmm. around us, which I think is something lacking in today's climate. Absolutely. That is very true. And you int introduced that video talking about your experience in Korea. So I want to segue into talking about your how you journeyed into biblical scholarship. Sure. You, like I said in the intro, you've had not one, but three careers. That's right. And I'm sure our <laughs> listeners are curious about this. Like, how did you go get from A to C? And so can you tell us about your journey to becoming the biblical scholar you are today? Yeah. So in, in terms of the three careers, when I was in college, I felt the call to ministry for some strange reason. I decided to do my MDiv in Korea, like I'm fully second generation. I did not speak Korean very well. I didn't learn as a child. It was different from my generation. Korea was so poor. And a lot of our parents were really insistent that we should learn English well. And there wasn't the knowledge that children are very capable to learn multiple languages. And so I just felt like it was important for me to learn Korean language. So I went to Korea. I did my MDiv at a press in Korean. In Korean, yeah. I like and to you share that. You weren't fluent. You weren't fluent no, coming I, in. Um, I was terrible. And in <laughs> fact, my open, I share my grades with my students. In my first semester, I got a C minus in Hebrew. And I got in Old Testament, I got an F. I'm not exaggerating. I failed the Old Testament class, which obviously on that 0.85 GPA, God was calling me to become an Old Testament scholar. And so <laughs> here I am. And so I was a pastor and I was going to seminary. I was getting better in Korean. And as I was learning Greek and Hebrew, which is really important for the Presbyterian seminary in Korea, I began to learn Korean more and more. And the more I learned Korean language, I felt the more I learned about myself, the, yeah. the more I learned why my parents did the things that they did. The more I was able to have communication with my cousins, extended family, my grandmother, my grandfather, there was something about learning language that was really key to unlocking a certain understanding of my own identity. And so as I'm learning Korean, I actually learned Greek and Hebrew in Korean. And so I would get the lecture in Korean and I'd have multiple dictionaries so I can translate the English to Korean for a quiz or the Korean to an English. And it just was a, a really great, beautiful parallel. The more I understood Greek, the more I could understand the New Testament. And certainly Hebrew is so radically different from anything else I'd studied. It felt like the ambiguity within Hebrew language was so helpful for me to open up to an ambiguity of theology in the Old Testament. And so mm. I was fortunate to learn Korean, Greek, Hebrew kind of at the same time to give me a deep appreciation for language and what it does to your understanding of something. And that was a path I, I pursued. You know, biblical studies, as you know, is mm -hmm. so centered on language acquisition, not just Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, but 
know, as they say, if you only know one Semitic language, you don't know any of them. And so it was mm. such a natural entry for me to understand the Bible through language. And so your disorientation as a learner of Korean and Greek and Hebrew, in a way, it has given you an interpretive edge in a lot of ways into some of the questions that you are asking of the text. Yeah, like imagine immigrants coming and they don't speak the language. Think about the power dynamics when you don't exactly. know the native language and think about the confidence. And I remember, Jeanette, this was before. So nowadays, when you go to Korea, you can order all food you want on an app. You don't need to say a word. But back in the 90s, you actually had to pick up the phone, dial the local Chinese restaurant and order food in Korean. And I remember the first time I did that, I was so nervous because when you're at a restaurant, you could use your hands and stuff. But if you're talking on the phone, you don't have access to that. And so I remember feeling so nervous ordering just noodles uh, to be delivered. And I also remember when they successfully came to my apartment feeling so accomplished, like there's power. If I have $2, I can order a serving of noodles and I'll come right to my, my apartment. And so that's just one example of how, yeah. yeah, it gave me kind of a lived experience on migration and just the very simple notions of power that can play out in something as standard as ordering a meal. It's so powerful. Like I, I could literally tell you where I was sitting in my apartment in 90, 1993, when I ordered these noodles for the first time, it's such a huge moment for me. Getting that judgment coming to your house nice and hot is an accomplishment. 2001 back then. It's, I don't Man. know how much it is now. It's 2001. <laughs> wow. That was in the 2000s. You were doing your seminary in Korean. In, uh, in the, Korea. The 90s, actually. Yeah. In the 90s. Yeah. Okay. And then this was after you've already been an analyst in Silicon no, Valley, or was that I, before? I am that was before I'm the world's worst MDiv grad ever. Like I'm the worst <laughs> MDiv grad. So I got okay, my say MDiv. more. And so as you know, in Korea, um, you cannot get ordained until you're 30. And also, as you know, men have mandatory military service. Well, I, I quit my Korean citizenship and that exempted me from military service. And so I actually graduated from seminary really young. I went, I was 26. So I'm still four years away from being qualified to be ordained. Also at the same time, I was getting kind of burnt out with ministry and I was single, I was young, childless. But as you know, in the Korean church, especially then, there's no such thing as part-time. You could be a full-time seminary student, part-time pastor, but you're, there's no such thing as being a part-time pastor. When crisis comes, crisis comes. If you the layer on comes. that, crisis comes all the time. And layer on top of that, it's a Presbyterian church, so run by elders. And I was in my 20s. I was really, really young. And so when an elder asks you something, it's, it's really politically dangerous to say no. You have to navigate those very carefully. And so I was kind of burnt out from ministry. So I took that MDiv degree and moved back to the United States. And I was living in the Silicon Valley and I got a job as an analyst just to kind of take a break from ministry. Never the intent to leave forever, but just to take a little mm -hmm. bit of a break and to understand that world a little more. You know, another thing that happened um, that kind of pushed me that way. So as a pastor of this church, this English speaking ministry of this really big church, and we get a lot of visitors, business people. And one day we had a businessman come in um, and he was there for an extended time. And he was working for a place called Dallas Semiconductor and Dallas Semiconductor. And he was, you know, doing some stuff and he was in a conversation with another, another engineer and they were speaking to each other in English, but I couldn't understand anything they were saying. 
even though they were speaking English because the industry jargon is so mm. specialized. And I felt actually at that time very detached from the congregation. Like, what am I doing if I can understand like the synoptic problem, the problem of the gospels, the first three gospels, you know, you know, being a little bit different, but I can't understand what this, you know, American guy is going through one of his daily life. And, and that was kind of a motivation for me to kind of get an industry to get that experience. As it turns out, I, I entered a company called Maxim Integrated Products. And at some point after I had left, Maxim Integrated Products bought out Dallas Semiconductor, which in my Presbyterian reform way was I feel God's way to say, this was all part of the design. This is all part of my plan for you. It's just so random that this guy that I remember <laughs> from Dallas Semiconductor ends up being at a company that I would actually work with as well. So how long were you uh, in, in the Silicon Valley? I was uh, Nellis for almost four years. And so and this was also the late 90s. It was a very, um, for the listeners that remember high tech in the late 90s, this is when Pentium chips started to become kind of ubiquitous. And this is when um, certain companies were doing really well. And so you might remember companies like Cisco Systems, um, 3Com, Applied Materials. So this was a very growing time, which I think yeah. was also very formative for me, you know, when I started the company, uh, the company was at like $400 million a year in sales, which is about mid-sized. And within four years, it got to $2.2 billion. It was insane. And it was just an absolute insane time. And when I left the internet companies like Yahoo, it had already started to crash, but I was in hardware and that was still very, very solid, but I left. And of course we all know what happened soon afterwards that there right. was a, a major, not quite recession, but definitely downturn correction in high tech stocks. So what, within that time, those four years, were you looking toward to becoming a, going back to doing your doc, not back to, but were you hoping to do doctoral work in Hebrew no, Bible? not really. I think um, I was just kind of settling. I was in this good job that paid well. And, you know, if you come from an immigrant family, that's, that's a big deal, like to have a good solid job that pays well in your 20s. A couple of things happened. And one was uh, my stepfather, you know, at the time he got very sick, he passed away of cancer. And he was in his 60s and super healthy. And then within 19 months of diagnosis, he had passed away, I which see. is, you know, not uncommon for stomach cancer. And I think that was a real sign to me. I think I appreciated the job, but I just didn't like working. It just wasn't fun for me. And actually, my wife asked me, we got married during that time, and she asked me if God could grant you guaranteed success at any vocation, what would you do? And I just never had thought about it in that way. I'm kind of a safe guy. I don't take a lot of risks. And I had this really nice job. And I said, well, I, I guess if I was guaranteed success, I would, I would probably be a an Old Testament scholar. I'd probably be an Old Testament professor. I, I think I would have been pretty good. And I think it would have been a lot of fun. And then she asked, well, well why don't you do that? Mm -hmm. And then I was like, uh, okay. And I, <laughs> that um, year I quit my job. And so you quit your job before going into, or you already applied for programs? No, no, no. I just you quit, just quit your job. job and moved to where? Well, this is the ironic thing. My spouse, she wanted to become a marriage and family therapist. So we moved 
to Down Oakland to Avenue and Pasadena. Ah, yes, so in Pasadena. Yeah, so she could attend Fuller. And, and I was so you're a Fuller like, grad too, right? I am, yeah. So eventually, so she started a year before me. I took kind of a, a year to just kind of think through things. And eventually um, I did a master's at Fuller and then did my PhD work at UCLA. The impact of Fuller. I know. The Fuller's education people (laughs) come to Fuller. (laughs) This was a long time ago, but yeah, it was, uh, I think God's really gentle in certain ways. I think the combination of seeing my stepfather pass away, Mm. um, this kind of appreciation, but just really, you know, when I was an analyst, I'd worked so hard. There was so much pressure. I'd worked so hard to help this really rich company get richer. And Mm. there's something that just kind of, you know, it was, I was uneasy with that. I think it's great. And I had great models of good Christian witness in the Silicon Valley, but it just didn't feel right for me. And at the same time, even, you know, the academy in the pastorate, there are so many complaints, so many complaints, mm. but I'm just so grateful. I think, and granted, I've have been very blessed and fortunate in many ways, but even on the worst days, I'm just so grateful to be here, to be with students, to engage with other biblical scholars, to have conversations like this. It's just a really... Uh, quite a blessing from God that I can't even articulate. Hey, I'm Daniel Lee, the Academic Dean of Fuller Seminary's Asian American Center. I hope you've been enjoying Centering. Our vision is to provide substantive conversations on topics that really matter to the Asian American Christian community and to others who care about us. This work is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Your contributions help cover the production and editing of this podcast and continue to affirm that this work is important to our community. To support Centering, please visit fuller.edu slash giveaac. Again, that link is fuller.edu slash giveaac. Thank you for listening. And, you know, talking about your, your good Presbyterian, the sovereignty yeah. of God at work, <laughs> you know, like even your, your training in, as an analyst has really impacted your questions that you bring to the text with, of right. what does it mean to be wealthy? What does it mean to be impoverished according to scripture uh, or even in the ancient Near East context of, you know, your questions on economies, et cetera. Like it, it, it just seems like it comes together in, in, in such an interesting way um, it- in, in your life, in your work, in your ministry. Yeah, I remember, and it was kind of dormant, these questions. So I, I studied econ as an undergrad, and then I became this analyst, worked in finance. I will never forget my interviews to become a financial analyst. It's kind of like an academic job search, except it's all in one week instead of like nine months. And I, the final, the final <laughs> interview nice. is with, with the CFO. And the CFO, just to give you context, he was probably about mid-30s, earlier mid-30s. He's already a CFO of a major company, and all their salary compensation was public. So he was probably worth about $30 million at the time. And I remember sitting in his office. He's, you know, it's a CFO office. Everything's nice. The pens, the the office decor, the the furniture. And I remember him telling me like, this is a high tech company. We make our money through technology, but we run the, the company through finance. We run the company through finance. So even for a high-tech company that depended on technological innovation, all the decisions and thus the operative Mm. values were reflected in finance. And so that was something I brought to the biblical text. Like, why Mm. do we not Mm. engage in the way that these economic questions reflect certain values and ethics within the text? And what I discovered is 
economics is so intrinsic and subconscious that we don't even think about it. And so in ancient Israel, for example, there was no money. It hadn't been invented. Uh, people lived based on networks that were kinship based, and that's how they did all their exchange. You are with cousins, you share things with cousins, you have division of labor decided by your, your father. Questions that we have today, like, where should I live? What should I study in college if I go to college? Who should I marry? Those did not exist in ancient Israel. They were decided for you. And certain professions like a stockbroker and real estate agent, they just did not exist. And so how can we imagine a world without money that is actually deeply agrarian? And I think that helps us understand certain things that have been taken out of context in the past, like what is mm. material blessing? You know, what does it mean? It's different if you are a investment banker compared to if you're a farmer in ancient Israel during the Iron Age. And that, you know, blessing looks very different. It's much more tangible towards day-to-day -day dependence on God compared to if you have $35 million in the bank or something like that. Right. And we can't assume a capitalistic backdrop to the ancient Near East, to the biblical world. And yet we do oftentimes when you read the text, have that as our presupposition of how the world operates. Right, we do. And I'm, I'm sympathetic because that's all we know. If we're right. raised in the United States, we know about negotiating for wage and getting jobs. And play. But that's, yeah, we, we, it's, it does us a disservice if we superimpose that network onto our reading of biblical text. And yet it's the only thing we know. So we do it even in our subconscious. So if you look at a lot of, like, for example, Old Testament histories, it'll use words like import and profit. Those are all anachronistic terms. And so mm -hmm. you're not importing if you have a self-sustained family, extended family farm. You're not doing profit. There might be something that might relate to surplus. That's only to keep you to the next year in case the harvest is bad. A coinage doesn't even appear in Judah to 400, and it's extremely rare. So it's obvious that very few people had access to coinage, and it was probably ceremonial, if anything like that. And so, yeah, those are really important questions that I'm trying to get to the fore in some of the work that I do. We can go on and nerd out on this all day, but I want to talk to you about how you see your identity as an Asian American and all of its complexities. How do you see that impacting your scholarship? Yeah, yeah. So that is something that I think about all the time. And it wasn't until writing this commentary, writing a, a book before the commentary on the theology of Ezra Nehemiah, that I came to peace with identity being dynamic and changing. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up Korean American in the 1970s. It was, and I tell my kids, it's, it's nothing like now. <laughs> like this is back when K-pop was kind of terrible. Korean dramas were two people talking in front of a bowl of rice for an hour. There was no beautiful set and budget for Korean dramas. You had to watch it on the specialized, specialized cable or at some point, VHS, you, VHS. You, know, in, you have to be in yeah. mind. In the eighties, you can get in the VHS <laughs> back then. Um, nobody knew about Korea. The question that was most common is, are you Chinese or Japanese? Cause those mm -hmm. are the only two versions of Asian in the imagination of most Americans. Um, it was just such a different time. And so uh, I actually talked to someone from your congregation, Jeanette, about this, uh, Tim. And we yeah, had this Tim conversation Bay. over um, breakfast somewhere. And we talked about it's either K-pride or self-hate. And that was mm. such a wise paradigm. And I was definitely on the self-hate spectrum mm. between K-pride and self-hate. Like I, I just remember wanting to be American. And I remember my dad taking steps, I think because he experienced so much difficulty as a Korean immigrant 
that he just wanted us to be Americans. So we did Cub Scouts. We played Little League. Uh, I rode BMX bikes. He did not want us, you know, he gave us American names on our birth certificate. He just wanted us to assimilate. And I remember just growing up, there were so few Asians mm-hmm. in California, in San Jose, which sounds incredible now, uh, just kind of wanting to be like everyone else and kind of wishing that I had, you know, a quote unquote normal name and uh, that I could look just like everyone else. And so it took some time for me to kind of develop into a different identity. Um, so part of it in college, they started offering Korean language classes and I took some. Um, I went to Korea as a college kid in my junior year, and that was hugely transformative. And of course, my time. And so right now, you know, I'd like to see myself as someone situated within um, the Korean American church as somewhat of a reconciling vehicle, because mm. I have this really rich experience in seminary. Like I went to seminary mm. with a lot of the first gen pastors, yeah. and yeah. I know their experience. And so, um, but also like I'm fully second gen, like I, you know, and I'm not just fully second gen. I I feel like my dad raised me to be particularly well assimilated to American culture, which is sort of well in different seasons of life. And so I kind of see myself as being both kind of a reconciler within the church, but also a model. And Jeanette, as you and I know, okay, so we both have this in common. We, I think we both took our first Bible class with Scott Barchi. Is that true? Yes, that we did. We okay, did. So mine was Freshman a little bit year earlier. In college. I, mm-hmm. I, I think I took it my junior year, um, which was still earlier than years. But back then when you took Scott Barchi's class in New Testament, how many Asian Bible scholars were there actively participating in SBL? So you and I are right. both, we're not that old but we're kind of pioneering in a way. And I take that, um, I want to take that very seriously, that we can Mm -hmm. role model ways that we could produce text, have good scholarship, but also be true to our identities. And now we're both in a place where we can mentor PhD students and have this be a part of who we are and realize that this is kind of almost a paradigmatic shift in the Guild of Biblical Studies to have Asian Americans in tenure positions where we are now training future scholars as well. Yeah. And you're doing that so well. And I think that your location in Georgia and in in Atlanta is really important and uh, significant at this time because there's a huge influx of Korean immigrants coming into Atlanta in the way that was like in in the LA um, years ago. Oh, you would not believe, you know, driving around our our neighborhood in in Atlanta. It's like K-Town. It looks like K-Town in LA. So it kind of feels again, like God's <laughs> sovereign, sovereign work bringing you there at this time for you to have that reconciling vehicle, like as you talked about being that reconciling role in the church and in the, and, and um, leader in the academy. I just, like, it's, it's really amazing to see the trajectory of your, of your vocation, of your career. I mean, I, I sit back. So my first SBL was in 2003, and this is the big annual meeting of Bible nerds that you know gather once a year and talk about we love it random we love it. It's things, fun. random obscure things that nobody cares about. But my first meeting was in Atlanta in 2003, and I never, even if you asked me, Jeanette, five years ago, you know, I never would imagine living in Atlanta, like never, or living even in the South. And this opportunity came, and it, it worked out, and it was, you know, the timing for families right, and so. I, I still sometimes look out my office window like, what am I doing here? How did I end up here? And it's, it's, it's a trip. It's wild for sure. Well, how do you stay 
creative and passionate about your work. I'm segueing a little bit because not just what you do, but how do you do it? Yeah, I think if I think about the work largely, like I'm just really appreciative of this opportunity. I still remember those days as an analyst. There's something called the Sunday night grip when you work at a company where it's Sunday night and you just get really depressed because tomorrow (laughs) is Monday. And Mm -hmm. this is back when there was nobody working remote. You had to check in, you had cubes and there's so much work and none of it's fun. And just the opportunity in ministry and in academia, you're always with people. You have this chance to enhance people's lives and relationships with God. You have this chance for knowledge and that's that comes consistently in this profession that I did not get an analyst. And so being grateful for that is one way that um, I can get that creative energy. Another part is as we, how do I phrase this? Because we are Asian descent biblical scholars, the opportunities for mentorship are wide and strong and plentiful. And just kind of knowing oneself, I really enjoyed that aspect of kind of my mid-career, getting to know scholars that are a little bit earlier in the career than mine, and just trying to give them advice and trying to help them and trying to be empathic to some of their struggles that they get. And we get this with students as well. But now that I'm a place where we have PhD students, it's really nice to kind of uh, to sit with them and to help you know, help them think about things that I wish I thought about more when I was a PhD student or while when I was early in my career as a biblical scholar. And so that's really meaningful. When you do things that I think are true to who you are, I think it just feeds on the energy and the self-satisfaction and the idea that you are doing something that is called and specifically for you. And, and that helps maintain that creative energy and the enthusiasm and commitment. Right. You're, you're investing in future teachers of many pastors in the church. And I see another connection with what your work, your work as it connects to the church through your investment in uh, future professors and biblical scholars. And I think it's meaningful for us, Jeanette, because the people before us, you know, there are, there are some, and they did such hard work, but even we could think about how our experiences at seminary would have been enhanced if we had more maybe role models or people that can just understand, if we didn't have to do so much, what I'd call translating with theological studies and biblical studies, um, not just in the classroom, but in the people that we read and the lectures that we hear. And and so I think- It takes um, enormous energy. It takes, yeah, yeah, it's it's tiring. And so that's something that I think is, uh, we both can take delight and be able to do at this moment, at this time. Yes, definitely. What can, what advice can you give our listeners to help them delve into deeper study of scripture? You, you joked about at SBL, like people are nerding out and talking about things that no one really cares about, but we care. And yet, well, how do you bridge like that information and that study? Well, we actually don't have time for this question, but maybe for another day, like how do we bridge right. that into the church? That's something sure. That there's translation going on there, actually. That's an important task, I think, of a biblical scholar for the church. But in a practical, at a practical level, what advice can you give us to delve deeper into study for personal discipleship, for preaching, for teaching? I, I love that question. The first thing I would say, and I don't want people to misunderstand me, is slow down when you're reading the Bible. Slow down. So I've always been parts of churches where we're encouraged to read the Bible. And I think that's really important. It's important that we read all the Bible, your parts. I know a lot of people that read the Bible multiple times every year. 
and they're just mowing through seven, eight chapters a day. And I think that's really important. I don't want to diminish that at all. But I think often for Christians, especially those of certain Protestant and evangelical traditions, we are so obsessed with just kind of that routine of checking these off of the app reading that sometimes it fails us when we slow down. Sometimes we, we do a disservice to ourselves when we don't slow down. Remember the Bible is not to be read the same as like an op-ed or a newspaper article or something like that. It's a different genre. It's supposed to be a special place in our lives. So even to take a few verses and to read it for an hour, Mm-hmm. And what that means, you just relax and pour yourself some coffee and have some snacks and sit in a nice place, have a nice view, be free mm-hmm. from certain distractions, listen to music maybe, and just read and think about that and read and think. And that's okay. You're not, and you could spend an hour reading three verses. In many ways, it'll be much more productive than the nine chapters you mowed through. Even to understand that reading is kind of a modern thing, like back in ancient Israel. And in Nehemiah 8, they read aloud. There's no word for reading in Hebrew. It actually means to read aloud. And mm. you read aloud and you hear it together. And it's a very special moment. So some take some time to slow down and just to read a couple of verses. And even if you don't come with anything totally insightful, Asians actually have this unhealthy relationship with productivity. It doesn't need to be productive in that sense. But I think it will be fruitful if you just mm-hmm. let it sit with you for a little bit. I think the second thing I would say is to execute yourself. We mm-hmm. all have our experiences and lenses. And so for me, when I read about people going up to Jerusalem in Ezra 1-3, I think about my parents' old migration experience and what impact that has on me and my children. But to really look at yourself, your gender, your class, your ethnic identity, um, your history, where you grew up your experiences with the family, and those will all have something to add in how you read the text. And so just to be aware, um, this whole idea of the right reading is kind of a hard concept because we all have our own bias cells that are filtered through many prisons we're not even aware of. So to be able to understand yourself as you understand scripture, I think is very crucial. Becoming a self-aware reader self-aware that yes that's what i tried to say which you did much more concisely than I and did. i you know <laughs> and, and i think the idea of of slowing down and mulling over chewing on uh savoring scripture wasting time reading scripture you could put it in if you want to and not that it's a waste of time but taking the time can feel like a waste of time right, um, right. i think with preachers and teachers too like we have so much to do we have so much to produce right. so much to offer and teach and and and, and to give um, but that time to let let it soak in, to be challenged, to be surprised by. Right, right. The text is this something that we can miss if we don't take time. And, and I, I, I'm totally empathic with preachers that are so, so busy. So you can do this yeah. in pockets. You don't need to take a five-day retreat at the monastery <laughs> to do this. You could take <laughs> it ain't gonna like happen, yeah. 10 minutes and think that's about right. a phrase. And I think that's tremendously a valuable habit that I'm still trying to, to place into my life as well. But it, you don't need, I understand you're busy. I am totally with you. And so it doesn't need to be this massive, massive thing. You can have these in tiny increments. That's really helpful, Roger. And this whole conversation was so enriching and interesting and I hope inspiring, especially for those who are wondering where God's role is in the the, the, the weird paths that they might seem mm. to t- they take or the uh, their experiences and their journey, how even those strange or 
windy paths can lead to a real beautiful intersection of God really using us in who we are with our past to understand and get insight into scripture in ways that maybe we wouldn't have without those experiences. So I think that you are an incredible scholar and you give a lot to the academy through your investment in other scholars, but also your preaching and your teaching and the ways in which you try to connect your work and ministry to the church. It's exemplary. And I'm thankful to see you in action and to let you talk and have you talk about it with us today. Well, that's so kind. And I, I so appreciate our friendship in the way that we could understand how these conversations on just life and our callings and our work. I also appreciate your language of a winding path, which is much more generous. Jason, I thought the title of this podcast should be Worst MDiv Grad Ever. I, I think I'm a, that's a more honest assessment of you know, my You know, my actually, <laughs> Roger, for the MDiv students, master's students, PhD students out there who think you need to have it like all together, straight A's, rocket in Greek and Hebrew, et cetera. You can actually, actually get F's in Hebrew yeah, Bible and still become failed. Yeah. <laughs> a biblical scholar. So that's encouraging news, I think. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. And great to see you. Thanks for having me. This has been Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. Please tune in each week as we continue to discuss how the Bible speaks to us. And remember, God loves and embraces all of who you are.